Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. I am Joe List, and I am making my voice even more buttery and sing-songy than usual. Buttery. Isn't it weird that you can use the word buttery to describe a voice, and then we kind of know what people mean, but butter is really not like a voice. Like, butter doesn't make a sound. But yet you can be like, his voice is buttery. Sarah and I always say, um, what's her name? Chrissy, uh, not Hind. What the hell's her name? McVee. Chrissy McVee. Is that her name? Fleetwood Mac. It's when the loving starts and the lights go down. That's a buttery voice. There's not another living soul around. You know what I mean? Buttery. This is a weird start. This is one of the weirdest starts to an episode and also one of the most special episodes to me a uh, very special guest uh, on the podcast today in fact i don't even know how i got her it's crazy um sharon salzberg is on the podcast today if you're not familiar she is a meditation teacher and um As described in her new book, a central figure in the field of meditation and a world-renowned teacher and author, Sharon Salzberg is um, one of the many Buddhist teachers that I've read and listened to for many years. And she's sort of uh, a giant in the um, sort of American Buddhist teachers, along with Jack Kornfield and um, Joseph Goldstein. I love Tara Brock, but I think she might have come a little later. I don't know my history that well, but um, she's been studying Buddhism since the 70s and teaching for many years. And she started the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, which is out in Western Mass. And um, yeah, I kind of took a swing. I just uh, messaged her via Instagram and somebody that works for her reached out um, or told me to email her and I emailed and went back and forth and made it happen. Uh, It was exciting. I'm trying to get some non, I was going to say better guests. I think all the guests have been great. I'm trying to get some non-comedy guests, people that are in meditation and Buddhism and psychology and therapy um, to kind of... I don't know, broaden a little bit. And so I reached out to a few and Sharon was the one that got back and we made it happen. So I I have to thank her um, assistant that helped make it happen. And uh, I was so thrilled and really nervous as you'll probably hear. We kind of discuss it a little bit, but Sharon Salzberg is amazing. You can check out her podcast, The Meta Hour on the Be Here Now Network. Uh, I listen to it all the time. She's really great. She interviews... um, you know, other people in the field and all, in all kinds of fields and talks a lot of psychology, meditation, and she's great. She's just really calming and has a ton of wisdom. And she has a brand new book that they were kind enough to send to me. It's called Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World. And uh, they sent me a copy. I haven't read the entire thing, but I've read, I don't know, maybe 35% of it. I'm a slow reader. <coughs> that is not a COVID cough. That is a acid reflux cough. I was at my parents' house yesterday and just went bananas. Smoked a cigar, ate an entire pizza from the Linwood, had a cheeseburger, chocolate chip cookies. So 
I'm feeling it today. Um, anyways, just finished talking to Sharon. I was um, a little anxious because, you know, I'm not a journalist or an interviewer, really. And normally the podcast is talking to comedians, which is what I'm most comfortable doing in my life. So, but I think it went pretty well. I think, I don't think I made a fool of myself. I don't think she hates me, but I'll probably think about that later. But my thoughts are not reality and fear is just fear, as I often say, and as Sharon and I discuss. So feeling pretty good. I also want to take this time because I'm looking at it to plug my friend's book. I have a friend. That's right. I'm going to really name drop here. Sharon Salzberg is a guest. Maybe we're friendly now, but I have a dear friend. Maybe you've heard of him. Colin Quinn. Huh? How do you like that? Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. He's got a new book called Overstated, a coast-to-coast roast of the 50 states. And uh, it is fantastic. I'm trying to read both these books at the same time. And I've only read uh, a little bit of Colin's book as well. Um, I am a dumb person, so it's hard for me to read two books at once. But uh, that book is fantastic as well. And I highly recommend getting it. It's really funny and also really... um, I don't know, I was going to say smart, but that feels dumb to be like, the book is smart. He's smart. His writing is uh, just brilliant, brilliant guy and um, very meaningful person. So check that out. And also uh, I got some dates this weekend, tomorrow and Saturday, Friday and Saturday, October 2nd and 3rd. I'm in Connecticut. You can go to craftbeercomedy.com. Check those out. Everything's half capacity, quarter capacity, so it might sell out. And then uh, October 11th, Mark Norman and I are in Fairfield, Connecticut. That's the New York Comedy Club's show. And uh, I'm going to have some other dates coming up soon, I think. And please continue to go check out I Hate Myself on YouTube. Leave a nice comment, thumbs up. And go subscribe and review this podcast, Mindful Metal Jacket, uh, wherever you get your podcast. You can watch it on YouTube. It's always available now with video. And uh, leave a nice comment on there. And and click the thumbs up, get that algorithm going. And uh, thank you again, as always, for all the very kind reviews on the um, podcast app or whatever it's called, iTunes podcast, whatever. I don't know how anything works, but all those reviews are really, really nice. So thank you. Subscribe. It helps. And thank you for all the kind emails and messages. Um, Twitter, I'm trying not to check too often. So if you got something you really want to share, Instagram is where to do it. And uh, anyways, thank you for listening. This is probably going too long, but um, just feeling good. Very excited. I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode, a lot of wisdom, and uh, maybe you'll learn some stuff about meditation. I highly recommend meditating, and I also recommend taking a break from your phone aside from listening to podcasts. Anyways, let me give you some wisdom straight out of the book. This is from Sharon Salzberg's new book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World. And there's a little meditation in the back that you can say quietly to yourself. I care about your pain, yet cannot control it. I will care for you and cannot keep you from suffering. May I offer love, knowing I can't control the course of life, suffering, or death. I wish you happiness and peace, yet cannot make your choices for you. Mm. That's a helpful thing to say and think and feel 
for a loved one and even a non-loved one, which we discuss in this podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being you. Now enjoy this conversation uh, with the great Sharon Salzberg. Awesome. Okay, we're recording. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for being here. It's it's this is very ironic, Sharon, because you're somebody that I read and listen to to calm myself, and you have such a calming presence, and you've been so helpful to me. Yet now here I am talking to you, and I, I feel incredible anxiety and oh dear. nervous. So <laughs> I'm sorry it, to hear that. Yeah, it's very ironic, but. Um, it's interesting. I mean, first of all, I've listened to your podcast and and tons of talks and interviews you've done and, and read your book. And so it's, um, you're somebody that's been a part of my life, but I've never obviously met you or spoken to you. So it's uh, strange. I'm also not a journalist. I'm a comedian. So I, I'm worried, <laughs> you know, I'm always worried. You're, normally I'm talking to comedians and we just, we talk about meditation, therapy and anxiety and all these things. But um, that's my life is talking to comedians. So I have to warn you, I'm not a journalist, but I do have thoughts and questions. It's fantastic. You could probably cheer me up if you're a great. I'll, I'll try. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's uh, something I want to ask. So you, obviously you're a, a, a meditate, a, a meditator, a meditation teacher. And I know a lot about you. Maybe you could tell um, people, cause these people may not be that familiar with you. This is mostly comedy fans. Could you tell a little bit about, who you are and how you came into the business of meditation and all that good stuff. <laughs> yes. Well, I started teaching meditation in 1974, or as my friends say, before it was cool. And uh, I had gone to India as a college student in 1970. It was sort of like my junior year abroad. I went with an independent study program that I created um, because I wanted to learn how to meditate. And that formed in my mind that desire when I did an Asian philosophy course as a sophomore and I was just blown away by it. I honestly, looking back, I think I chose it out of happenstance. It was like on Tuesday. I thought, Oh, that's convenient. Let me do that. You know? And, and uh, it really changed everything for me first. Like many people I'd had a very uh, traumatic, uprooting, difficult childhood. And like for many people, mine was a family system where this is never was never ever spoken about. And so I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside of me. And then when we got to the Buddha, you know, in that course, here's the Buddha saying right out loud, like suffering is a part of life, which translated into my mind as you're not so weird. You know, you're not so different. You don't have to feel so cast out of life. So that was huge for me, actually. And then I heard in the context of that class that there were these methods, very practical, direct methods you could actually use to be happier. And they were called meditation. So I was going to school in Buffalo, New York, and I looked around Buffalo. I did not see it anywhere. This is 1970. Sure. And I created this project. And I said, I want to go to India to study meditation. So the uh, university said yes, and off I went, and that that was the beginning of everything. Well, and I, I remember hearing you doing interview at one point, talking about going to India, and whoever your teacher or instructor was, I forget what the instruction was to kind of sit here and feel whatever you're feel or, or whatever mm -hmm. it was specifically, and you thought, 
Well, I could have stayed in Buffalo for that. That's right. I did think that. <laughs> I didn't yeah. need to come here for that. What was the instruction? The instruction? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah I definitely remember. Um, I still do it. And uh, the, um, I mean, meditation has lots of methods and lots of styles, some sitting, some walking, uh, you know, some silent, some with voice. And uh, often methods are progressive in that you start, you know, with a foundational exercise and then you build on it. So the foundational exercise in lots of schools, lots of styles of meditation is to sit down and feel your breath. Just feel the normal flow, the sensations of the in and out breath. It doesn't have to be the breath. You know, you could use a mantra, you could use a sound, you could use an image, you could use anything else happening in your body. You could use loving kindness phrases, which I also teach a lot. Um, but the reason the breath is chosen is, as my early teachers would say, first of all, you don't have to believe anything to feel your breath. You don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or a Hindu or reject anything else. If you're breathing, you can be meditating. And then as one went on to say, uh, I think really charmingly, he said the breath is very portable. So let's say you have a 10-minute-a-day formal meditation practice and you sit and you use the breath as the place to rest your mind and come back to once you realize you've been distracted. Then you're, you know, commuting or you're at work or you're on Zoom or something like that. And you're starting to get anxious. You're starting to get agitated. You don't need equipment. You don't need to sit down and close your eyes and look weird. You can use your breath to kind of steady yourself and, and ground yourself. So that was the first instruction, sit and feel your breath. And I thought, that is so stupid. <laughs> You know, like I came all the way to India. Where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic piece of instruction that's going to wipe out all my suffering and make me a totally happy person? And as you said, I thought I could stay in Buffalo and feel my breath. Right. You know, and then I thought, well, how hard can this be? Like, what will it be? Like 800 breaths, 900 breaths before my mind wanders. And to my astonishment, it was like one breath and I would be gone. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting thing too because a lot of people listening may be new to meditation or haven't even tried meditation. So obviously you've been meditating for a long, long time. How is it now for you? I mean, I imagine you still sit down to meditate for 10 minutes or an hour, whatever it is. I imagine your mind is still thinking thoughts because that's the mind's job. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a problem-solving sort of computer, right? So it's not like you now with all this experience just sit down and it's complete emptiness the entire time i imagine i'm 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 guessing no that's true and, and the goal isn't that kind of emptiness or blankness you know a lot of people think it is um but really we're just trying to have a different relationship to thoughts not wipe them out right you know like we don't have to take every thought to heart and like nurse it you know and strengthen it and or even more intensely we don't have to let it pick us up and you know, lead us out of the room and get in the car and go shopping or something, you know, because we have like a random thought. Right. Um, you know, it's it's uh, up to us how we want to follow the thought or not, if we can see it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the big problem. It feels like uh, is that people sort of identify with their thoughts and they don't even realize they're thinking. They think that this is my, my therapist always tells me, and I'd, I'd like to get into that too of experience between therapy and meditation. I guess I'll just lead into that question, but um, my therapist always says your thoughts are just thoughts. You don't have to, your thoughts actually have no real bearing on reality. Your thoughts mm -hmm. are not reality and fear is just fear. That's what he always mm -hmm. tells me. Mm -hmm. That's kind of become 
a mantra of mine is fear is just fear. My thoughts are not reality. And, and so that's a question I had too. So I, I do therapy and I also meditate and I find that they come, they go great hand in hand. Do you find, is that your experience or what you recommend to people or can you just meditate without therapy by you? I mean, general people in general, um, or do you recommend both for people that have been through trauma or have severe anxiety or panic or what's your sort of thought process on that? Um, I think it really depends. You know, I think they do often go hand in hand and, and they can be great supports for one another. Um, you know, people used to meditate and this is, let's say specifically in the case of somebody with severe trauma, you know, or tremendous amount of anxiety. People used to meditate in a close personal relationship with a teacher. Right. You know, and um, we have so many ideas about what good meditation looks like. Like, I'm going to wipe out all thoughts. I'm going to have total bliss for an hour. You know, anxiety is not going to arise. I'm not going to get sleepy. And most of them are really unfair to ourselves because they're not true. Right. And, and so... Uh, meditation teachers will tell you that one of the core principles is balance and balance always looks different for us, right? Some days we're like really distant from our experience and balance would mean like come a little closer and other days we're like totally enmeshed in our experience and, and balance would be like get a little space, you know? Right. And so if you have a teacher who's personally guiding you, that's what they have in mind. And so um, you know, there's nothing sacrosanct about the ways we tend to meditate, like sit still, you know, like, well, not every school says sit still, right? you know, or close your eyes is another one. Not every school says close your eyes or even what I suggested or what I described as my first instruction, the first instruction given me, the breath doesn't work for everybody. Right. You know, and so if you have someone you're working with, that can really personalize and, you know, balance looks different at different times too. So, you know, you might have a teacher who says to you, well, I think you should sit with your eyes up and don't sit for more than five minutes. Mm. You know, that's a reasonable instruction. It doesn't mean you can't do the real thing. That is the real thing for you. Right. Then. Right. Right. You know, and, and in the absence of that, because for most people that doesn't exist, a lot of people are getting that kind of personal, intimate, direct, um, experience working with a therapist at the same time they're meditating, you know, because the same issues will arise. Boy, you're hard on yourself, or you know, that's an unfair standard, you know, like right, or, right. or whatever it is. And you can work at it that way, certainly as well. Yeah, I think for me, because I first got into, I mean, my whole story was I'm crippling anxiety and and panic. I've had a bunch of different. Uh, times in my life where I had bouts with sort of chronic panic attacks where I was having them daily and sometimes a couple times daily in my early 20s and then later on in my 20s. But I also was an alcoholic. I mean, I'm still an alcoholic in recovery now, but I was back then I was drinking excessively thinking that that would, I would be anxious. And then when I started drinking, I would become less anxious. And then of course, at some point in the night, I would get really anxious. And then the next day I would feel just horrendously anxious. And so I was always interested in anxiety, uh, in, not in anxiety, in, in um, meditation and 
this idea of being Zen, I was so anxious that to me, the opposite of that was desirable. This idea of being this Zen Buddhist guy that everything was, I was impenetrable, which was my impression of meditation and Buddhism. And then I got sober and I went into the Eastern, you know, philosophy or Eastern religion section of the bookstore. And the first book I found was Alan Watts, The Wisdom of Insecurity. And I read that and that was confusing, but it's sort of a, uh, like a Zen Buddhism. It felt like he was sort of talking about what, do you have a relationship with Alan Watts at all, either personally or just um, reading his stuff? And I read his stuff when I was in college before I went to India. So that was really a long time ago, you know? Sure. So I was like 16 or something like that. And it was very important for me. Yeah. Yeah. That it, it sort of opened that door. And uh, I still love going back and reading his stuff. But at that time, a lot of those sort of more, and I'm not a Buddhism expert, but it feels like Zen Buddhism feels to me always more sort of confusing and going, where are we here? I'm, uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a blade of grass. I don't know what the hell's happening here. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I found, um, what's the famous Zen book? Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And that I tried to read and that just made no sense to me, but it's still led me sort of closer to that path. I wanted to understand that. And that's, is it normal for that book to be very confusing? I'm, I assume you're somewhat familiar with that book. Uh, yeah. Um, that book is, is uh, deceptively simple, you know, so it's, it's, it's main message is actually in the title and that's, what's confusing because like when I first saw it, I thought, Oh, I know what that book must be about. Like you start out with this awkward, beginner's mind that you want to get rid of as soon as possible and you work and you work and you work and then you get you get a zen mind and then this is when i was home from india on a break i saw the book i didn't even buy it i thought i know what that's about and then someone sent it to me in india or i'd gone back and i actually read it and i thought oh it's the opposite <laughs> look at that right, right. you got that totally wrong right that the goal in a way is a beginner's mind which we don't usually appreciate like the first time we do something and we're so open-minded and we laugh, you know, if we fumble or, you know, like, cause we know it's the first time I ever sat down at the piano. It's the first time I ever, you know, did this thing. And, and, uh, you know, we, uh, we're so interested in everything and, and we have that kind of more complete presence. So it was like, Oh wow, I got it totally wrong. Right. Right. That, so that, that was a book that I read and got some out of and, and understood a little bit. And then the big one for me was discovering Thich Nhat Hanh, his mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. I think Happiness was the first one I read and then Peace of Mind. And now I have like a, a library of Thich Nhat Hanh books. And I know you reference him in your new book and his stuff. And my fans know that I reference him all the time. And he really sort of got me on this path as much as I am on that path, but his book seems so um, pragmatic and, and easily accessible and understandable. And he has a quality that I just see his name or a photo of him and start reading. I immediately feel um, calmer and more centered. And is that your experience with him? Have you meditated with him? Do you have a relationship with him? Uh, I've met him, you know, a few, I had met him a few times. Um, he came here to Barry, the Insight Meditation Society, for a visit once, and uh, he taught here several times. But I wasn't here when when he was teaching. And then, I think the last time I saw him was 
on the stage at town hall in New York. And I'd had this totally frenzied time getting there, you know, like uh, it was, it was like a real New York story. I'd waited. In fact, this isn't one of my other books. Um, not the most recent one, but I'd waited too late to try to get a taxi. So it was that transition time where, uh, those of your listeners not in New York, you know, there, there, uh, there is a time when, um, the taxis are uh, winding down for that shift before the new shift begins. And so very few taxis, even if empty, want to take you because they have to go drop off their cab. And, uh, but they usually stop and ask where you're going. So if your destination is close to, right. you know, where they have to drop off the cab, they'll take you as the last ride. So that's what happened to me. And, and then this cab driver and I got stuck in this horrible, horrible, horrible traffic. And, I thought I'm never going to make it to Dick Nathan's lecture in time. And he's going to be late dropping off the cab. And I don't know what happens if you're late, you know, if you get fined or what. And I kept saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, I never imagined traffic would be this bad. And he said to me, Madam, traffic is not your fault, nor is it mine. And wow. I thought, wow, I didn't even have to go here, Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, I just had an enlightened cab driver. But he got me there with like zero seconds to spare. And I ran to my seat. And there was Thich Nhat Hanh walking with the utmost dignity to his seat. Yeah. You know, looking completely serene. It was very funny. Yeah. He, I, I meditated at a thing in, in Boston, I think in Copley Square. I don't know, maybe it was seven or eight years ago now that he was leading this meditation. And there was a big crowd. And again, I was still new to meditation. I read his books and I remember trying to sit on the ground and I just, I couldn't do it. That concept to me of, I need to meditate in a chair still. The idea of sitting on the ground is just insanity to me. My legs hurt, my knees hurt. And evidently you're supposed to just feel that or accept that. But I, I do not accept <laughs> knee and pain. My foot falls asleep and I start to panic. So I ended up I looked at all these people, you know, sitting down and meditating and I kept leaning on an elbow, laying down and I ended up having a headache by the end of it. So that was early in my, uh, my journey, but, um, that was my one experience actually mm -hmm, being, uh, in his presence life. But anyway, so all that to get to my point that I started 10 minutes ago was it, for me, it took, I kept reading these books and trying to meditate on my own. And it took for me, um, going to therapy really helped sort of mm -hmm. get to the source of all of my anxiety and understand it. I think for me, one-on-one -on -one with the person, I love listening to these podcasts and these guided meditations, and now they're so valuable to me. But for me, it took sort of one-on-one -on -one with a person to kind of hear about my upbringing or whatever it was, and that really helped, and I now use those tools. So together, therapy and meditation have really allowed me to kind of get it more. Um, so that's been my experience with that. So for everyone listening, I recommend both, both mm -hmm. things, but it doesn't have to be that way, I guess. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it's exciting. I think to think of our lives as first of all, not so stuck and as a kind of creative medium and we can experiment with lots of different ingredients and see what works. I mean, another thing about anxiety is that, you know, it's such a physical reality in these days, you know, people talk about breathing in certain ways so that your whole system can kind of calm down and the vagus nerve and all that stuff. And, you know, and it's like a lot of stuff to experiment with to see what's helpful. Yeah. And this is something you sort of talk about in your book too. I think there's a, a meditation in there about sort of reminding ourselves that we're not 
really in control of the world and we're in control of kind of very little really. And in some ways we're not even in control of our thoughts. It feels like just our Mm -hmm. response to our thoughts, because for me, that was so much of my anxiety and still is, is sort of wanting this guarantee that I'm going to be okay, that the world is going to be all right. And that the pandemic will go away and the election will turn out the way I want it to. And I'm just, I, I always, I've been always looking for this stamp of, all right, you're going to live for 85 years healthily and then you'll pass away with your loved ones at your bedside. Don't worry about it. But that doesn't exist. And it took me about 37 years to realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, That's true. It doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah. So it's sort of accepting that we're not in control. And it's interesting because that was the feeling for me of anxiety and panic attacks is the feeling of being out of control and ironically that feeling is what it takes to sort of not have anxiety does that Mm -hmm. make sense well well, isn't that in a way i mean we we're not in control of the arising of our thoughts and i think that is a very forgiving reality because usually we we blame ourselves so mercilessly for what we're thinking what we're feeling it shouldn't be there should be over it i've been in therapy you know i've meditated all these years when and realizing that we can't control what arises in our minds, but we actually can relate very differently to what arises in our minds. And so we can be kinder to ourselves. We could remember it's not just me. You know, this is kind of part of human conditioning or many people have this tendency, you know, give yourself a break. Right. Like if you blame yourself for an hour and a half, that is not going to leave you with a lot of energy to start over, you know, and, Right, it's going to leave you exhausted, and so it's just not that skillful a reaction. And so we kind of say, well, you know, I've been down that road before. Let me be kinder to myself. Things like that. We have lots of options in right. terms of how we relate. Yeah, my therapist always gives me the advice, and I'm sure you've heard it and read it before, and I read it places. Is that advice to be as kind to yourself as you would be to somebody else? Because I would never, you know, if my wife tried meditating. I wouldn't go, yeah, but I bet you were thinking a bunch of thoughts, you dummy. You know, I'm like, what's the point? You're still going to have anxiety. Like it would be viciously mean, which we tend to be to ourselves, which I don't know what the science behind that is, but um, it's horrible. I feel that way all the time in my Mm -hmm. career and everything, all all these things of, yeah, but you're still not making that amount of money. You didn't, that one person hated your act or whatever it is. And so, and I, I talk about this a lot on, on this podcast and I've read it a lot too, and maybe you could speak to it or that the idea of meditation is sort of deepens the grooves of a lot. It works that muscle to kind of go back into that um, quieting the mind and sort of recognizing that thoughts are just thoughts, because if you're not doing that, that's just your habit is to go back into maybe self-hatred or believing whatever thoughts you mm-hmm, have and sort mm-hmm. of so it's trying to kind of undo that is that one of the things of, of mindfulness yeah no definitely and it's it's sort of knowing the difference between what's actually arising thought feeling sensation whatever it is and what we're adding to it you know like a very common thing would be you feel physical pain or discomfort or you feel emotional pain you feel a heartache you feel disappointment and right away you start thinking, what's it going to feel like tonight? What's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? So not only are you having to deal with what's actually happening, which is that something hurts, you know, but you've now added all that anticipation on top of it and it feels overwhelming. 
because it is overwhelming, you know? Right. And so that's a habit. It's just a habit to add the future, you know, right. when something doesn't feel good. Or, uh, you know, what we were kind of talking about before, I shouldn't feel this, you know, I've been in therapy all this time. Why am I so angry? Why is this still coming up? Or, or I've been meditating for 50 years, for God's sake, why is this still coming up? And, you know, it's just like if you think about the energy that we expand in judging ourselves, which only leaves us exhausted, you know, and demoralized. It doesn't leave us with like, I'm going to learn not to do that again, you know? Like, right. It's not like a tool of resilience by any means. And so um, that's what we learn to undo. Not the th original thoughts, feelings, sensations, because that's just life, you know? Things arise because we are very conditioned in certain ways. And, and so, um, but we can be totally different with what arises. Right. And, and that's like, it's very possible. It's not unreal or imaginary and it's freedom. Right. You know, like also listening to, you know, I think about my friend, one of my colleagues, Sylvia Borstein, who um, she's 81 or 82 now. And she describes herself as a recovering catastrophizer. And uh, that's what drove her to learn how to meditate is because she was suffering so much from, as she put it, she'll describe herself this way, like, I call one of my adult children, and, you know, they're all, like, in their 50s and 60s now. I call one of my children, and they don't answer the phone. So my first thought is, well, they must be dead. Right. So it never occurs to me they're taking a shower. Right. You know, or they just fell in love. They don't feel like talking to their mother. Right. And, you know, and that's what got her to meditate was I have to deal with my mind somehow because, of course, and it's not only our own anxiety, it affects relationships when you're like on your kids that way, you know, for example. And uh, she might have those thoughts, not with the same prevalence, maybe not with the same intensity, but they come and now she laughs at it because she also knows that she describes herself in a real situation where something's gone wrong, she's like a rock. She's steady. She's present. She's helpful. You know, she's not intrusive. It's just when she's left alone with her mind, you know, right. spinning out that she goes there. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that makes me feel good to hear because I have a very similar thing, a similar experience. And I've talked about this on the show before, is that I, in my mind, I'm this really weak terrified person and I'm not going to be able to handle anything. If anything goes wrong, it's all going to come apart. Um, but in reality, I think there's actually some psychological studies that really anxious um, neurotic people are actually the best in uh, crisis situations. Um, but I had, I always use as an example, I'll go to, um, if I have blood taken or any kind of needle or get anesthetized at the dentist or uh, whatever it is, I'll go, I, I really don't like needles. I get, I get really freaked out. And they'll say, well, what do you mean? Like, what happens? And I'm like, I just get really nervous. And then they're like, well, do you pass out? Do you run out of the chair? And I was like, oh, no, nothing like that. And they're like, oh, that, to them, that's bad. People, some people they take blood and they, they pass out or they, they run away or they, they punch the doctor in the face. I'm like, oh, no, I'm just uncomfortable. That would be bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... I had a tooth extraction and the dentist, there was stitches in there and he was taking the stitches out and I was like, I'm sweating. I can't, I can't, I don't know if I can do this. And then when he was doing it, I was completely still. And he's like, you just handled that better than 95% of patients. Uh, it's just my anxiety. And he's not even 
noticing it really. So I feel similarly, and I, I've always been a hypochondriac too. So same thing. If I have knee pain, I'm going to need knee surgery. If I have a headache, I got, you know, a brain tumor, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, now through meditation and therapy as well, it allows myself to be, to kind of go, it's probably not that, and it, it's much more short-lived. It's still there. I still have those thoughts, but it's much more short-lived, mm-hmm. um, which feels like progress. It's huge progress, and it's, the, it's real progress, you know, because I think we would all like the great breakthrough experience after which none of the stuff ever came up again, but uh, I think that's not what happens. I think that it still arises. We relate very differently to it. It doesn't last as long. We don't take it in as deeply, you know, this sort of like, I call it the Swiss cheese theory of transformation. It's like we poke holes in it even as it's there. Right. You know, so it's not like solid and inflexible. It's like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe not, you know? Right. I've heard the the analogy about, um, you know, zebras looking for zebras or something in the medical field where if you're in New York city, uh, I live in New York and I think you did as well or do. And if you hear like a clip clop in the street, most likely it's a horse. There's horses in New York, but like hypochondria anxiety is like, that's probably a zebra. I bet that's a zebra. And you're like, well, there could be a zebra walking up seventh Avenue, but most likely it's a horse. And so I feel that way with, I always use that analogy of when I'm feeling sick or whatever it is. And I think, Oh my, I must be dying. I'm sort of going, that's, Probably a horse, if that makes sense. And it does, yeah, it does help me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's how I've always been is this alarmist. And I talked about a, a year ago, or maybe it was two years ago now, I got, I had a sore throat and I, my, I went to an ENT and he diagnosed me with um, silent reflux or LPR, or whatever you call it. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have no voice. I'm going to have esophageal cancer. And, and now I've realized a year later, after a year of that, I realized, oh, I just, my throat's sore for a few hours after I eat pizza. <laughs> it's, it's fine. But anyway, so I owe all of this to the combination of uh, meditation and therapy is what I'm getting at here. But um, I wonder if you could talk about what your meditation practice looks like now after all these years is it something do you wake up are you doing guided meditation is it on your own still or do you do an hour are you meditating all day what what, (laughs) what's a meditation practice look like for someone that's been doing this and and teaching for so long well we usually divide meditation into two aspects one is like a formal dedicated period it might be sitting it might be walking it might be lying down but say 10, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, so whatever the length of time is, your goal in that time or your intention in that time is to deepen awareness and qualities like compassion. You're not also trying to figure out a career change or something like that. Like that may come up, but that's not why you sit down to do it, you know, to figure it out. So, um, and so that's like the dedicated period. And the other part of meditation is what we sometimes call short moments many times. And that's just like remembering. Like Thich Nhat Hanh actually had the most famous recommendation, which is don't pick up your phone on the first ring. Let it ring three times and breathe, and then you pick it up. Right. You know, it's just these little bitty times throughout the day. Maybe don't always multitask when you're drinking a cup of coffee. Right. Maybe just smell the coffee, taste the coffee, feel the warmth of the cup. 
things like that. Nothing that is going to like completely upend your to-do list or is going to take you 18 hours to do, but just short moments many times. And most of what that depends on is reminders. You know, like that's why the phone ringing is a good one because it's a signal. Right. And or people tell me they do things like maybe after you've written the email, don't press send right away. Take a few breaths and then read it again, maybe, and then press send. Right. If you want to. So um, I, I believe very strongly in that first, the dedicated period of meditation, because I think it makes the second much easier. Otherwise, it starts to get pretty hypothetical, like, yeah, tomorrow I'll start. Or, you know, like, oh, there was the phone I forgot, you know. Right. But if you have that little period of it's almost like strength training each day, then you you can uh, much more easily remember, I'm just going to drink this cup of coffee right now. And, you know, I'll check my email later and something right. like that. Yeah. Um, so my own practice is, is I still I meditate every day. Um the last neuroscientist I talked to about how long a daily practice should look like um, in order to actually produce measurable changes in your brain, uh, she said to me, 12 minutes. Interesting. And in her lab, they found 12 minutes a day. Now, nobody knows exactly. The neuroscientist I talked to before then, you know, which was a couple of years ago, and they're both friends of mine. They're both like really good scientists. He said seven to nine minutes a day, you know, so nobody knows exactly, but it's always stunning to me that nobody's saying you have to do this formally eight hours a day to get any result. You know, it's like, that's the period of strength training each day. And then we just bring it into our life as best we can. So I do sit every day. Um, I also, in terms of seven to nine or 12 minutes, I usually say, I don't know if it's that useful to go for the bare minimum, you know, like maybe we could extend it a little bit. So I try to sit at least 20 minutes a day and probably usually these days more than once a day. And um, there are also so many techniques. Like, you know, I started talking about the foundational exercise of like, say, being with the breath. And then when you find your attention wandering, you come back. And then on top of that, we build mindfulness of emotions and sensations, things that become predominant, you know, really strong so that we might spend a little time just looking at them and observing them and then coming back to the breath. And so I do some of that for sure. And then there's another whole stream of of meditation called loving kindness meditation, which I do a lot of where you don't rest your attention on the feeling of the breath, you silently repeat certain phrases like, uh, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. Uh, so it's just like a different style. And I do quite a lot of that, especially these days. Yeah, it, it feels um, so important these days to try to do that stuff and to have as much, um, to practice as much compassion as possible and I've been doing some of those guided uh, metta loving kindness meditations. And I actually had a question about that because I've, I've listened to some guided uh, meditations of loving kindness and the advice of the person um, leading the meditation uh, is to find someone that you have uncomplicated feelings about. And you can think about someone like that, not someone that's maybe whatever it is uh, a parent, but someone that you sort of, 
you know pretty well, but you're not like, boy, he drives me crazy with this and just sort of think like that. Do you ever do a, a loving kindness meditation for somebody that you really disagree with, say uh, a politician, for example, we won't name any specific ones, but um, my audience knows who I'm talking about. Do you, do you do, uh, can you meditate on somebody that just seems like a horrible human being? Is, is that a, is that a, uh, a helpful thing? Is that something you've tried before? Yeah. I mean, uh, in the classical um, practice, systematic practice of loving kindness, we make this offering of loving kindness to a variety of people. And it's, it's important to understand what loving kindness means. It doesn't mean you like somebody. It doesn't mean you approve of them. It doesn't mean you're going to give in to their views or whatever. It means that you have a very deep sense within, which may not be emotional even, but you have a deep sense that our lives are intertwined and that everybody actually really does want to be happy in a, profound sense not in a stupid sense you know we want to feel a sense of belonging we want to feel um, a sense of home somewhere in this body in this mind with one another on this planet and it's because of the force of ignorance that we make so many mistakes if you think about um, everything we're taught you know what makes us strong what makes us happy and the myths and even the lies that we're given and how readily we believe them and and then uh you know vengeance will make us strong and safe well really you know like let's take a look and compassion is stupid and, and it'll make you weak well really let's take a look and that's sort of one of the gifts of mindfulness is that we can see for ourselves but um you know so we offer loving kindness to all kinds of beings as long as we understand what it is and the classical rotation can't all be done in 10 minutes. You know, it's like over time. Um, we start with ourselves. We offer loving kindness to ourselves. And then someone known as a benefactor, somebody uh, that we feel grateful for, you know, that the texts say, this is the one who, when we think of them, we smile. It could be an adult, could be a child, could be a pet. Like lately I've been using a puppy as a benefactor because my friends, his family adopted a puppy and they're so much happier than they were before. So I think of that puppy, you know, sure. and it makes me smile. So it's oneself, the benefactor, a friend, someone called a neutral person, which is a very interesting category. It's somebody we usually don't like, just like very much. We feel kind of indifferent to them. And very often this is someone who plays some kind of role in our lives so that we see them now and then. We, don't, we objectify them. We look right through them, basically. And probably for 45 years, my colleagues and I have been saying, like the checkout person in the supermarket, that would be a perfect example of a neutral person. So I was doing a meditation, which was being recorded the other day, uh, and I heard myself say that, and I went, whoops, look at that. You know, like, now we call them essential workers. And you really think, like, how do we think we get to eat, you know? Right. Um, but there are a whole lot of people we look right through. And so uh, that's the neutral person. And then a difficult person, you know, somebody we actually don't like or we don't like their behavior or they're very difficult for us. But by then, we hopefully have a sense of what it feels like, say, to have compassion for someone like that and for ourselves. Right. 
or a sense of compassion for them and a really strong understanding. I'm not giving in, you know, I'm going to fight because I think their actions are harmful, but not with hatred. You know, we're not coming from a place of hatred. And then after the difficult person, we come to all beings everywhere. So in any one sitting, like if you're doing it at home, you only got 10 minutes. Usually we say, start with yourself. If you can start with yourself end with all beings And maybe there's one person in the middle because you don't have time, you know, for so many people or so that middle part is usually very situational. Like I have a friend having surgery. I'm going to offer loving kindness to them or I have a friend getting an award today. I'm going to offer loving kindness to them or I'm going to the supermarket. Right. (laughs) You know, I'm going to choose the clerk, something like that. Right. Yeah. I've, I've done some of those and you really do feel uh, good afterwards. You f- I feel really, um, I don't know, lighter and, and you really do feel good and positive and it does <laughs> sort of affect my behavior in the immediately following. Um, not that I'm walking around, you know, being an asshole to people, but you know, you, t- you tend to feel yourself being nicer and kinder and kinder and, and really noticing people more. And so it's a practice I highly recommend. And you do talk about it in your new book. I want to also mention your new book, and I'll mention it in the beginning of the end. Uh, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World. And that's available now. And I thank you for sending me a copy. And I've read, I'm a slow reader, so I've read as much as I could in the, in the few days that I've, I've had it. And I think you talk about what we just talked about there in the book. And it was fantastic. I'm, I'm enjoying it very much. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you mentioned phones and letting the phone ring. How are you, and I assume you still have, you know, students at the Insight uh, Center and stuff. How do you see um, the phone addiction and, and social media, all this stuff? I mean, I get despair thinking about it, seeing it, watching people walk around with their heads buried in the phone, literally crossing the street. And it feels like the antithesis of mindfulness. I mean, it is. It's not even really up for debate, I guess, unless there's people who are really mindful in the conversation they're having while crossing the traffic. Um, but it really does seem like mindfulness in this country is becoming more um, prevalent and, than it's ever been, uh, thanks to people like yourself. And But it seems like it's running up against this, the ultimate enemy of mindfulness is um, the cell phones, smartphones. What's your interpretation do you have hope for this are you do you feel despair could you talk about that a little bit yeah i don't feel despair i have a lot of hope but um it's challenging you know i was uh teaching a class once and this professor friend of mine was in the class and he said uh he was very worried about his students and their use of social media and and as he put it he said no one posts a photo of their mediocre lunch You know, so it's all a curated life and presentation and trying to look perfect and uh, feeling you're not perfect enough. Your lunch didn't have foam or whatever, you know, and 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 so it's used in a lot of ways and uh, that can be destructive. But it also it has so much potential. And I just keep thinking about that potential. It's like, you know, our center is closed right now and uh, any courses that are happening are happening online and uh i think we all miss the days when you could truck up to barry you know and like be together and and silently and uh 
And yet, you know, people write me all the time and they say, well, I, I, I got older. I'm taking care of, you know, my really elderly mother. I can't go to retreats anymore. I'm so appreciative of what you're doing online. Or if I am teaching a course online, I see people are signing in from Dubai, you know, and right. all over Europe and, and Russia, I think, really, you know, so that potential to help us connect and social media is included in that, you know, like I went to India, like I said, at the age of 18, I'd never, I grew up in New York. I went to college in Buffalo. I'd never even been to California before. And I went to India because that desire to learn was so strong. And, and after I'd been in India, um, I felt like that was another kind of home for me. And I realized that I didn't have any psychological distance from India anymore. Like I could go there for a week. Right. You know, and, and I realized that the potential of something like social media is that people will not have psychological distance from anyone. And that's great. But you're right. Of course, there's so many people in New York tell me, uh, not now because everything's so weird, you know, but before uh, I miss the old New York because you could have these conversations with all these different kinds of people. Now, no one's talking to one another. They're all just looking at their phones. Right. And And so... You know, I think it's like any instrument. It could be used well or it could be used badly. And I would hope that we would learn to use it well. Yeah, that's my my hope as well, is that people um, will start to see the negative aspect of being on your phone so much. And uh, But yeah, I, I mean, there are now mindfulness apps and there's a lot of like a lot of my guided meditations are through smartphone apps and all these podcasts, of course. So it there are hours of uh instruction and guided meditations through smartphone phones of course but i've 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 had it happen to myself where i do a guided meditation and i feel great and then you know i open my phone to whatever and then 30 minutes have just disappeared and then i feel like i'm like and this again is i shouldn't beat myself up i guess but i'm like god i just wasted this 30 minutes right after doing this great meditation and i'm like i, I feel like i got to meditate all over again but i guess what the the positive is that i'm i'm mindful of the fact that man i just was kind of mindlessly on my phone for 30 minutes but it does scare me to i've i just listened to a, a podcast about this and they made this documentary the social dilemma about you know all this dangers of the phones and that there's supercomputers on the other side reading our thoughts and minds and it starts to get tripped out and it's easy for me to go into and this is a lot of your book is about it's easy for me to go into really dark places thinking about the future of humanity whether it be you know um, politics or smartphones or having society not being able to agree on what's actually happening um, but it sounds like you're relatively hopeful for the future is that right or i am relatively hopeful for the future i can go the other way you know <laughs> sure. sometimes like uh but i am relatively hopeful for the future because even now you know where there's so much uh, awful awful stuff happening you can if you're paying attention you can also find the other side you know like well back to new york because um, even though I'm not there, I still have a rented apartment there, and which I decided to rent for this year because I'd like to get back there sometime. And there's no knowing. And you know, people tell me all the time, like, um, lived in my apartment for 12 years. I never even knew the names of my neighbors, and now everyone has everyone's names and phone numbers. 
so we can check in on one another. Right. Or a friend of mine who just turned 86, he said to me, uh, I got the phone numbers of all the elderly people in my building. I noticed he didn't say the other elderly people. I don't think he thinks of himself that way. Sure. Of the elderly people in my building, and I check in on them. You know, or food distribution or something like that, you know, and it's there. It's hard to even look at sometimes because it feels not commensurate with the really awful stuff happening. But but that's there. And, and it's pretty important to keep including that. Yeah. And I, I try to remind myself also that um, negative stuff really sells the scary stories, the bad stories. And that's, you know, where sort of capitalism takes over is, you know, that's the, the money is in, Hey, look at this riot or hear what this person said. That's crazy. And it's not quite as um, appealing for whatever reason to be like, Hey, look at this person that did all this volunteer work and we have the solutions to this thing. So it is important to um, uh, stay positive or at least, see things with reality, I guess I would say. Uh, and the reality is that there's a lot of good and positive happening. And you talk about a little bit in the book too, about um, and something that I've dealt with a lot being on social media and a public figure of trying to do something positive and then reading comments or getting feedback that some people are like, this is great. Thank you. And some people are like, this is terrible or this is not right or whatever. I, so that's something you've dealt with before and, and how do you deal with that? I know you talk about it a little bit in the book. Yeah. I mean, I think anybody who's a so-called public figure, who's a creative person, you know, who produces things deals with it. You know, like I have, this is my 11th book wow. and uh, you know, people, I would like to think everybody loves my books without exception, but it's not always the case by any means, you know, people have their own stuff, their own interpretations, their own feelings. And, um, you know, uh, you kind of learn. And the, the example you're, you're talking about is somebody asked me, actually, I was at an airport somewhere. Uh, somebody asked me if I would um, lead a, a minute of loving kindness meditation for the kids who were in cages at the border. So loving kindness in Pali, the, lang the Pali language, which is, like the colloquial form of Sanskrit. It's the language of the original Buddhist text is metta, M-E-T-T-A. So it's two T's. And so they said, would you lead a minute of metta for the kids in cages? So I wrote back and I said, yeah, you know, let me think about it. I'm only going to be home for like a day and then a couple of days and then I can write a script and maybe I can record something and then we could put something up. And then, so I did that. And then uh, the next, the day came, you know, just a couple of days later for the actual minute. And I was in another airport. I just sat silently and did my minute. And, um, and then I started getting comments like on Twitter. Uh, you're as bad as the people who only send thoughts and prayers. Why don't you do something and you should be demonstrating or you should be donating money or you should, you know. And, and I would just write back and say, you know, these things are very hard to look at, to take in, even to bear witness to this degree of pain. And I said, this is what helps me keep looking and not deflecting and not pretending. And I said, and besides, I can't, I did 
already donate money, you know, do things. And I said, I can't keep connected to this without also connecting to something bigger. Right. And, uh, and I would affirm that right now, you know, like, uh, it's not an excuse not to take action, but it's what helps us have a bigger sense of life, you know, and some perspective and not, just go down with every um, challenge because it doesn't help anybody in the end. You know, if we're just like super tormented ourselves and overcome, really, we're not going to want to get out of bed. I mean, why would you, you know? Right. Yeah. So that that's and that sort of speaks to the interconnectedness that um, we talk about and think about a lot is that you sort of take care of yourself so you can take care of loved ones and that sort of spreads out right i mean i mean that's we can only do what we can only control what we can control and so that starts with i think sort of taking a, a positive um attitude towards some things and, and doing whatever it is we we can do whatever we can, can contribute um i try to think about that with you know the environmental crisis i'm like well i can be mindful of what i'm doing and try to harm the environment the least amount i can and I donate money to the Nature Conservancy and then, you know, talk about it when I can and and then try not to feel too much despair because I can't just solve a climate crisis. That's, that's, that's beyond what I'm able to do. So I just try to be part of the solution. I mean, is that what you'd advise for things like that? I mean, yeah, sounds yeah. very wise, you know, like because we can only. Um, it's like if you find the issue or the work that you're most passionate about and you do it, you know, you can have a respectful relationship to everything else, but you don't have to like let it enter you, you know, and just like weaken you. Cause I mean, it's a very hard lesson to learn. It's like when I said, we start loving kindness practice in the classical sense with offering loving kindness to ourselves. That's not so easy for people. Right. You know, and the underlying principle of the practice, the reason that there's that arc is that we're supposed to do it in the easiest way possible. So the theory is that we're the easiest person of all. And we should start with ourselves. And I've taught, obviously, innumerable people for whom that is not true. And so I say, well, let's go back to the principle. Start somewhere else. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's really helpful. And it's a good reminder that, we can control our own actions and that's sort of the most important, or it's a, it's a, it's a good starting off place and we can't really control anyone else's actions, just our, um, how we handle them or interpret our response to them. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I want to plug the book again, real change, mindfulness to heal ourselves and the world. And, um, I really appreciate it. I'm really enjoying the book and also your podcast. You're still doing the podcast, right? Mm -hmm. The, the Met Meta Hour, is that yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. The Meta Hour, which is on Be Here Now Network, which has a bunch of great stuff that um, I love. I think Joseph Goldstein, is he on there? Yeah, he's on there. I mean, Joseph, I tend to like interview people on my podcast with Joseph. They tend to take his teaching and his talks and right. encapsulate it, which is great. Yeah, they're both great. And so I highly recommend those. And um, Sharon, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I was thrilled to have you on and I'm, I'm grateful. And I hope it was uh, as enjoyable for you as it was for me. It was really enjoyable. Thank you. Good. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List. Produced by Joe List. Edited by Matt Kleinschmidt. Executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt. 
for the Laugh Button Podcasts. 